Good morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. We'd like to welcome you back this week. I'm here with my colleague and co-host Cliff Staten, and we are going to be talking about various uh, international events that have been going on in the last week or so. Yes, Jean. Uh, interesting. Uh, earlier this week, uh, many of us got up early and uh, watched the royal wedding with uh, <laughs> Prince Harry and American Meghan Markle. Uh, yes, we did. <laughs> I remember uh, long ago when my wife got up real early to see uh, uh, Princess Diana get married. Yeah. Uh, we have this fascination with royal family Americans do I'm not sure why given that we rejected uh, British rule <laughs> many many years hard. ago but so why 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 should this be significant well it, it, I think it was especially uh, attractive for Americans this time um, there were actually I think I saw uh, nine million more American viewers <clears throat> for this wedding than um, uh, <laughs> Prince Williams, I just blanked Williams, on his name. Yes. Prince mm -hmm. Williams in 2011. So, um, you know, the fact that the bride was an American, it sure. was intriguing that she was a divor divorcee because, of course, the last time uh, a British royal tried to marry an American divorcee, it cost him the throne. Um, she's an open feminist. That has captured a lot of attention. And, of course, the fact that she's proudly biracial. Um, a number of or people who watched the ceremony noted a number of elements highlighting the new Duchess of Sussex's African-American heritage. Um, we had the a, sermon the was sermon quite <laughs> different. It was, was uh, a, I thought, an amazing expect. sermon and yes. not um, not quite in the, the typical, more uh, restrained Anglican tradition, but sure. in the more emotive uh, U.S. religious tradition. Different, different religious culture there. Um, someone speculated that uh, that Meghan Markle will shake up the royal family and introduce <clears throat> modernity and reflect the realities of a you know what is today a multi multiracial, multiethnic Britain. Um, I'm, I'm doubtful of that. Um, listeners do need to know that as a constitutional monarchy, um, the royals in Britain have no real political power. They do, however, have ceremonial roles and, and symbolically they stand for Britain. Um, but in, in standing for Britain and that kind of national identity stuff, um, they stand very firmly for tradition and convention. The monarchy is a fundamentally conservative institution Institution. Um, they've opened up a little bit, become a little bit more human, thanks in part to, um, I, I think, changes wrought by Princess Diana, who you mentioned um, a few minutes ago. But, you know, that, that they haven't eagerly embraced that. They've kind of been dragged into appearing a little more open and a little more human. Um, the do, you queen, think, do you think this was inevitable? Um, years happening? Specifically, what like in terms a, a of maybe foreigner? becoming more to reflect uh, British society? Um, not necessarily. Okay. I think um, I, again, I think this is a super conservative institution, and um, I mean, eventually, I think it would happen, but I don't. I don't think it was necessarily going to be now. Um, okay. I think okay. that that's that's not um, part of it. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. I think that um, Meghan Markle's going to have to probably fit into the institutional structures and norms more than she's going to shake them up. Um, but, um, you know, that, that will remain to be seen, I guess. But what I think what's partly interesting about this politically um, is that this, hap this, this um, you know, outsider, uh, 
biracial foreigner um, coming into the British royal family is happening at a socially complicated time um, in Britain in terms of national identity relating to immigration issues, racial issues, and stuff like that. Um, British national identity is very white. It's very traditional. It's even pastoral. Like, it's this sort of rural ideal. Yes. Um, and uh, if you if you if you visit the the UK, rural Britain is very, very, very white. But the urban centers, and I don't mean just London, I mean like all of the cities are incredibly diverse. Um, and so some a lot of those, um, you know, more diverse Britons are looking at Meghan Markle and thinking, well, finally, there's someone that looks like that us. looks a little bit more like us. Exactly. Um, but but there is a gap in that national identity between reality and what's in a lot of people's um, hearts and minds. And that doesn't and that that mismatch can can create some tension. And we've seen some of those tensions um, relating specifically to immigration policy that um, came out um, a lot of hostility toward immigrants with the debate about Brexit, the British mm -hmm. leaving um, the European Union. And so, so it that's has, sort it has of the manifested itself in the political system then. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, it's, there's also been um, a scandal going on that um, probably hasn't hit the attention of most Americans, but um, it's an interesting one. It's, it's known as the Windrush scandal. Um, and it really, I think, highlights um, both racial tensions that still exist within um, Britain today, as well, uh, frankly, as Britain's not very good uh, management of its colonial legacy. Um, the, the context for this wind, Windrush scandal is that after World War II, um, to address labor shortages, uh, the British government invited thousands of people from Caribbean countries who were British from British colonies, British Commonwealth um, members, to immigrate to the UK. Um, and now, because of some policy changes and um, you know bureaucratic mishaps, essentially, um, that have happened just within the last six years or so, um, some of these people who've, who you know have been in Britain for 50, 60, 70 years are actually facing deportation, potentially, um, which is uh, pretty crazy in a sense. Um, what has happened? is that uh, a lot of some of these folks from what they call the wind rush, rush generation people who immigrated again um, largely from the Caribbean um, not only from there but um, about a half a million people actually today um, they uh, were considered British citizens British citizenship law um, legal change in the early 1970 affirmed that they were citizens but the British government never sent them documents to um, you know make that clear um, some people never got documents in the in the context of other interactions with the state um, and so there's about 50,000 people um, who've been living in Britain for most of their lives um, some of these a lot of the, the people who um, are caught in this little trap came as children on their parents passports so they didn't have their own identity documents at that point um, about 50,000 of them thousand 50, 50 to 60,000 people, uh, again, lack proper documentation to prove that they can legally be in the country. Um, and in 2012, um, the British government under date Prime Minister Cameron, but with the current prime, and this is important in terms of the politics, but with current Prime Minister Theresa May as the Home Secretary, so the person in charge of immigration, um, they introduced a new policy um, uh, that they 
referred to as trying to create a hostile environment for immigrants. And that meant that um, anytime anybody had any sort of interaction with the state, going to the doctor because British uh, healthcare is national, is a they have the National Health Service, um, education, um, pensions and social security, driver's licenses, all of that stuff. People would have to prove that they had legal status to be um, within. Uh, Britain, and so now they've suddenly realized that they have 50, 50 to sixty thousand people who can't actually claim that. So this this started under when Theresa May was the Home Secretary. Yes, correct. in charge of immigration. Okay, um, and uh, it's just actually come out in the last well since October. Actually, the story kind of broke, and since then um, it, it's come out. One woman was literally like almost forced onto an aircraft to be shipped back to Jamaica, despite the fact that she's hasn't lived in Jamaica since she was a child. Uh, there was one person who, because he couldn't document to the National Health Service that he was, uh, you know, had been living in, in Britain for the last, I think it was 44 years in his case, um, he couldn't get cancer treatment. Sounds eerily familiar to things that are going on here in the United States. Well, it is, a, it is um, you know, their big immigration debate problem. And this is something, I mean, this really is a, a bureaucratic snafu. Um, the government, uh, Prime Minister May, has said, you know, this is not supposed to affect these people. There's no question that they are rightfully here. Um, but they also, again, don't have documentation. The, um, the British uh, uh, home Home Department, uh, which again deals with immigration, actually back in 2010 destroyed the last documents that they had of when these like landing cards that you fill out when you arrive on you know boat or plane or whatever yes. mm -hmm. um, destroyed them because of course they're British citizens. Like there's no question there. Except now again these people are caught in this hole. So, they're, so I, how do you fix this? Well, I mean they're going to have <laughs> yeah. Well that's a question because there's I mean some some people can't like apparently literally don't have documentation. So they're going to to find a way to make it right but it's created a lot of um i, I think this is kind of the takeaway point it's created a lot of um distrust and also it's really highlighted um the fact that you know a lot of people of who are um you know immigrants to britain from the former colonies just don't really still feel welcome and this is like you know kind of a little bit of evidence for them like look maybe we really aren't welcome i mean they're willing to deport us to fight despite the fact or they're willing to talk about deporting us at least despite the fact that you know we've been here for you know many decades and in fact um uh the uh home secretary under Theresa may uh amber red is her name uh actually had to was was had to resign a few weeks ago um because of this scandal, she fell on the sword essentially. Mm. Um, but okay. she had to announce publicly that she could not guarantee that people had not been wrongfully deported. So that's a thing. And so, you know, we have these these immigration tensions and these racial tensions. Um, the European, some European Union uh, Brexit negotiators actually chimed in here and said, well, you know, in light of this Windrush scandal, we think that you need to give extra assurances for EU citizens who will be staying in Britain after Brexit. I mean, there's, there's all this other stuff going on here um, that, you know, highlights, you know, Britain's not always open and welcome to foreigners this whole question and the race of, relations. Of, of what it means to be British. Yes. Oh. And now we have Meghan Markle. Yes. Excuse me, the Duchess of Sussex. Yes. Yes. So it's uh, it's it, it, it's sort of a yeah it's kind of a, an interesting convergence of events um, that does sort of you know highlight some of the tensions of of you know social problems and national identity issues in Britain. 
Which, which so. not just in Britain, we're seeing that throughout much yes. of the world. Yes, we are. Questions of, of identity uh, appearing once again. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Um, more big news out this week was the election in Venezuela. You want to update us on that? We've mentioned Venezuela on the show before, but. Sure. Um, Venezuela on May 20th, just the other day, um, reelected uh, Nicolas Maduro. What a as, shocking outcome. As its president, <laughs> yes. Um, he received 67% of the vote. Uh, the closest opposition candidate, uh, Henri Falcon, uh, received 21, about 21% of the vote. Um, Virtually most of the countries of the world basically have recognized this as a sham election, and quite honestly, it is. Now, there have been a few that have stepped in and congratulated Maduro on his election, uh, kind of in many ways the usual suspects, Turkey, Syria, Russia, El Salvador, Cuba, China, Nicaragua. But most countries of the world have recognized this election as, as uh, simply not being fair. Uh, there were no international observers allowed. Uh, the major opposition parties, uh, their candidates, uh, in particular, uh, man by the name of Le Leopoldo Lopez, um, uh, who they were basically banned from running uh, by the government. And uh, as a result, the major opposition group goes by the acronym of MUD, interesting, um, basically boycotted the election. So turnout. Told followers just not to show up and vote. That's exactly but, right, yeah. and and that was reflected in turnout. The official turnout was forty six percent, although uh, I've seen uh, other estimates as low as thirty percent. Now you might say, okay, forty six percent, but you have to remember, two thousand thirteen, in a very very tight election that Maduro just barely won, there was eighty percent voter turnout. Uh, so this clearly reflected. Uh, 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 the, the opposition's uh, mm -hmm. deciding not to participate, the lack of legitimacy by many Venezuelans in terms of looking at the Maduro government, uh, the fact that uh, it just simply wasn't it wasn't a fair election, and and so and so as a result, you know, you've got um, Venezuela, which um, uh, as as many of you probably know, is is, is a country that's probably ninety ninety five percent dependent upon the export of oil. Yeah, much of that oil to the United States, uh, and yet, and its economic problems, which we've t talked a mm -hmm. little bit about earlier, um, have 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 gotten worse. We've got uh, literally more than a million people have fled the country over the past year. Uh, to neighboring Colombia and other other countries, uh, you've got, and this is this is hard for me to imagine. You've got the IMF uh, estimating yes, fund. International Monetary Fund. Thank you, Gene. Uh, estimating that inflation is going to hit thirteen thousand percent. Now that's that, insane. It, it, it's 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 really hard percent. to imagine. Think of getting a paycheck. And you should, if you don't spend it immediately, yeah. think of how much value it's going to lose just by just by tomorrow, so to speak. Yeah. Here, so the economy. I mean, is at thirteen thousand <clears> percent, it literally would be worthless. losing value by absolutely. the minute. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and we saw this in uh, in um, in the late eighties in Nicaragua as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but nonetheless, uh, so you've got these this harsh economic terms, uh, situation going on. 
And um, the question is, you know, what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, the United States has placed some targeted sanctions against Venezuela. The EU is considering sanctions. Um, our sanctions have targeted specific individuals in the government that they can't travel to the United States and some of their funds that are here in the United States have been have been frozen. Uh, and uh, the State Department and uh, President Trump is considering an oil embargo, which would be interesting um, uh, in that, given that oil production ha has been limited tremendously. But you have to remember, in this country, Sitgo, if you get gasoline from Sitgo, that is a Venezuelan company, and all along the, the coast, uh, the, the Gulf, of Mex uh, Gulf of Mexico, the coast there, all of these, uh, m many of the um, refineries are run by Sitgo. So it's going to have an interesting effect on, mm -hmm. the, on workers there. Uh, plus, uh, what many people don't realize also is that Venezuelan crude oil is very, very heavy. Mm -hmm. And to even get it through its pipes to get it to the coast and to be refined or sent out to the rest of the world, it has to be mixed with a very light crude. And guess where that light crude comes? It comes from the United States. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Um, you know, when I teach Latin American politics and I talk about Venezuelan politics, I, when I talk about Latin America in general, I play... My students will tell you ad nauseum, I focus <laughs> on uh, patron-client relationships. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Venezuela, basically the party in power has basically remained in power through the, pay, through the money from, from the state-run oil company. And they can pay off their patronage and so on and so forth. And this is what so happened. So patron-client relationships, for anybody who doesn't know, that's kind of a you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. This is a, a relationship between uh, typically a more powerful yep. person or institution and a less powerful person or institution. And each kind of get what they want, so yeah. to speak. It, in, at least in the short term, it's a formula for stability. Yeah. Uh, we'll give you some political favors in exchange for your political support. Right. And so what happened, uh, bear with me a little bit of history here, <clears throat> uh, 1958, there was the Punto Fijo Pact, which basically ended about 10 years of uh, military rule and, and uh, civil war in Venezuela. And basically it was an agreement between the three major parties who only represented elite interests and the military. The military said, okay, you make sure we get our pensions, we're paid well, we get, we get to... Uh, uh, weapon system, we'll go back to the barracks, and the three major parties then, who represented primary elite interests, could begin having elections. And so, it's interesting you back and read, it, it, it presented for many years this kind of what I would call a veneer of democracy. Mm -hmm. They had fair elections, change of parties, but there was no party that really represented the poor and the lower middle classes. That changed when Hugo Chavez comes along in the late 1990s. His party uh, basically was the first to actually represent lower middle class, working class, and poor Venezuelans. But he benefited. A left-wing socialist. Left-wing yeah. socialist. He benefited from Our a podcast. booming oil market mm. in the 2000s. So he could pay off these patronage. Uh, uh, and the way the Chavista system works is very simple. They have lots of 
of uh, urban neighborhoods, very poor, in which they have a, a powerful person who basically handles the the patronage. Uh, client relationships and you get and he gets votes and so on and he did raise the standard of living for many venezuelans mm -hmm. now he was hated by by the right by the by elites and so on but what has happened his successor nicolas maduro um has had the unfortunate problem of since 2014 the price of oil has collapsed now has he been has he moved in authoritarian direction Absolutely. Has he mismanaged the oil company? Absolutely. But clearly, he can no longer make those patronage payments, and he's losing a lot of support among people that originally supported the Chavistas. So you've got – it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens in the near future. Uh, if President Trump imposes an embargo, you know, it's it's really going to affect the poor even more, mm -hmm. who are suffering the most. And and I mean, when you I mean, you mentioned their paychecks, but also like they can't food shortages. Yeah, yes. I mean, you just can't even buy it. It's That's just not food there. Food shortages, medical shortages. Yeah. Um, uh, Americans can't imagine. I mm -hmm. uh, can't imagine what's happening, and that's one of the reasons why you're seeing so many people leave the country, yeah. literally flee the country. So you know, uh, if you look at, uh, look at, I've looked uh, even this morning. I looked at several Venezuelan newspapers, uh, and you have to watch what you read because some of them are run by the uh, right wing business community. And some are so suggesting that, um, you know, the only way out, if you look at Maduro's supporters now, that typically the businesses that support them have ties to the military. Many think that mm -hmm. the very, it is very possible you could have a military step in, but uh, that remains to be seen. So uh, we'll see uh, what exactly happened. Uh, the, uh, Maduro, Maduro has actually said that uh, he... Uh, uh, it's, they're actually thinking about basically making the dollar the official currency mm. you know, to try to deal with inflation Stabilize. issues. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, that's going to mean uh, a tremendous uh, loss of purchasing power and uh, a tremendous shock to the economy. Uh, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see what 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 happens there, and we, we need to keep our eyes on that. Uh, yeah, it sounds uh, really so. rough on people. So perhaps we, we need to go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll come back and uh, go to another part of the world. All right. Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn, but not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. 
Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, and, of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm place on a cold I want to day. Be a football I stadium. want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. Um, I'm Jean Abshire. I'm here with my colleague Cliff Staten, and we are talking about major events in the news this week. So let's kind of go back to the uh, back to a different part of the world here. Um, what's going on in Ireland these days? A significant referendum coming up. Yeah, on Friday, uh, the people of Ireland, including apparently a lot of people who are um, I Irish people living overseas who are flocking back home to vote in this, which is, I think, an indicator of just what a big deal it is, um, they are going to be having a national referendum on the question of abortion. Um, which That's is, interesting. Yes. That's a very 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 catholic country um yes and no okay um it it uh, i mean it is but um actually uh the the level of people professing professing catholicism has has plummeted um from over 90 percent to just over 70 percent um really just in the last few years as a function of um scandals that have emerged relating to the Roman Catholic Church uh, yes. ranging from um sex abuse by priests that we are um you know familiar with in the US and other other countries um Australia's been in the news Chile's been in the news um just in the last week with regard to um to priest uh sex scandals but also um uh, there, there have been uh, reports that have come out in, in recent years in Ireland regarding um, the church and just, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to call it human rights abuses. I mean, uh, children um, born in orphanages that were, didn't survive, um, they found mass graves, um, women who, um, unwed mothers who were abused in what they called Madeline laundries, where they were basically made to, to work under uh, really slave-like conditions. So um, all of these scandals associated with the Catholic Church has led to many people distancing themselves yes. from the church in yes. Ireland. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's 
you know, kind of part of the context for um, this abortion referendum. We have seen some changes. Um, just a few years ago, um, Ireland actually, uh, in another referendum, legalized gay marriage, which is also something that one wouldn't necessarily um, expect to find in a super Catholic country. Um, but the abortion, the abortion debate is is a hot one, and it looks like it's it's going to be a super close referendum. Aren't abortion laws in Ireland pretty. What word shall I use here? Stringent. Let's put it that way. Yes. Um, um, abort, um, Ireland I mean, is the most restrictive um, country among liberal democracies, except for Malta, which is about on par. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was actually um, inserted into the Constitution, the current level of restriction. Um, as recently as the, as the um, early 1980s, there was a referendum in, in 1983 that um, uh, inserted the, what they call the Eighth Amendment that... Um, really put um, a fetus's life and a mother's life on par with each other. And in fact, um, until uh, 2013, even um, a threat to the mother's life was not a basis to um, have an abortion. I mean, there was really no legal basis. It wasn't, um, it, it's not legal in case of rape. It's not legal in case of incest. It's not um, legal in case of severe fetal deformity. And again, until 2013, even if, I mean, mothers could die and not and and not be able to, to be saved, which is, um, you know, something that even though abortions are obviously, or the abortion issue is, an, is a hot one within the U.S. Like, mother's life is one that, yes. that most Americans are you know, like, oh, yeah, we got to protect there. that. Yes. And so did those <clears throat> Irish women who could afford oh, to have yeah. an abortion probably went to another country Absolutely. to have it. Um, yeah, it, it's not that abortion doesn't exist in, it, well, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in Ireland, it does exist for Irish women. Um, and in fact, about um, 5,000 Irish women a year are getting abortions. Um, in the past, um, until pretty recently, um, most of them went to the UK, um, where they, for you know, somewhere between probably one and two thousand dollars, could access um, an abortion. Um, more recently, um, in part thanks to the internet, um, there have been uh, there has been access to um, a pill form of abortions, where you take a couple of different. Um, uh, pills in, in combination um, with about a 99% efficacy rate. And so um, about 2,000 women a year are mail ordering pills um, and and getting uh, terminating their pregnancies that way. Um, but, you know, the concerns there is that women are either forced to travel um, or do it, uh, you know, use these pills um, which are widely regarded to be safe, but nevertheless, um, you know, there's there no there's no medical supervision and in this context. you would have to go to a hospital or a doctor, and I'm assuming the doctor or hospital would have to report. And there's it. a 14-year prison <clears throat> sentence on the line if you are caught, um, ha- you know, having an abortion. Um, and so, yeah, so that's that's a big issue. They haven't stopped abortion. Um, they've just just made it harder to get, which is really the reality with with abortions being illegal it doesn't stop them it just makes them harder to get riskier um and you know realistically there's class differences there as well for someone wealthy no problem for someone poorer obstacles so what groups in ireland have uh pushed this referendum well a lot of this movement um really grew out of an incident um in 2012 that really shook ireland um there have been 
um, you know, debates and and kind of things that have caused a lot of question and soul searching um, across the years. But there was a a death of a woman in 2012 that really kickstarted what what we have what we have now. Um, and the the situation was um, it was a, a, a an Indian migrant to Ireland. Um, she was there for she was actually almost done with dental school and uh, she was pregnant. She was in her 17th week of pregnancy, um, started experiencing severe back pain. That was um, an indicator that she was having a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And she went to the, uh, because of all the pain she was in, um, she went to the hospital and asked for a termination. Again, she was in the process of a miscarriage. Um, They said no, because they could still detect a fetal heartbeat. She was told this is a Catholic thing. Um, and she was, uh, you know, basically, one would argue, denied medical assistance. Uh, so she was sent home, and uh, the miscarriage, uh, like, didn't wasn't complete. Um, and she went into she went into septic shock, oh, wow. and um, okay. her organs shut down, and she died about a week later. And there's really no question, I don't think, um, among medical experts that if she had received. Um, medical care when she first went in, which would have been been the completion of this miscarriage, um, she would have survived. Mm -hmm. And um, this really um, unleashed a a popular uprising um, in Ireland. Uh, Within, like, the day that the story broke, um, uh, there were 3,000 people gathered outside the Irish Parliament um, carrying candles, this woman's picture, um, and signs that said never again. Um, a few days later, uh, there was a 20,000 person march um, in Dublin, again with never again uh, campaign slogans. And it gave rise to a number of groups within um, society that um, were seeking to repeal this, uh, this constitutional amendment, the Eighth Amendment. And, um, you know, this is kind of causing um, I mean, we talked about national identity with um, with Britain. This is also causing sure. um, a national identity questioning um, within within Ireland, and it re- relates to um, Ireland's as we already talked about Ireland's identity as a as a Catholic, Catholic country, country, which has been sure. undermined. Um, it also um, one of the there, there's a big, huge urban-rural split here um, in in Dublin, near Dublin. Uh, which is really like the the urban area, um, the repeal, the Eighth Amendment campaign seems to be strong in rural areas. Um, you know, more traditional. Uh, there's there's less ease with that. Um, part of it, of course, is that um, you know the belief that abortion is wrong. Yes. Um, but also, um, apparently, there's a lot of rhetoric from um, people wanting to maintain. Uh, uh, basically no abortions except in now again since 2013 which was an outgrowth of this uh case with the 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 woman who died um the fact that a mother's life in danger now can be a a reason for an abortion but they see um you know the the loss of traditional irish values the the value on family and children and protecting the less fortunate and that's that's national identity stuff some of this also reflective of um Maybe um, more women in the workforce, changing roles of women yeah, in Ireland absolutely. itself as well. Absolutely. I'm assuming some women's groups are pushing this. Oh, would, a lot I of women's groups are pushing, yes. pushing hard, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So 
And it looks like it's going to be super close. Like um, a few months ago, the repeal side was um, looking strong, but um, in recent weeks, the leave things as they are side seems to have been gaining strength. Um, there was some controversy uh, because the the no the no repeal side was uh, apparently planning a big social media campaign at the last minute, but because of all the controversy regarding foreign influence with social media, Facebook and Google both shut down. Um, Google shut down all advertising. Facebook shut down um, foreign advertising. And apparently a lot of the no, um, the, the no change side was getting a lot of support from overseas. Um, and so that really kind of mucked with their Yes, I read an article uh, where some of the anti-abortion folks here in the United States have actually gone to Ireland. Yeah. Now, technically, I think under Irish law, they're not supposed mm. to uh, participate in the political process. But some Foreign of them influence <clears throat> in political processes are a no-no in a lot of democracies. Yes, yes, yeah. as in the United States we're yes. going to talk about. Yes. So let's say the referendum wins. Yeah. So what? What happens? Is this amendment gone, or what happens? Uh, the amendment will be gone if the referendum wins, but there will be something to replace it, and that's not completely clear yet. Um, there is a legislative proposal that the government has come out with. Actually, most of the this is a this is a relevant factor. Most of the parties uh, in Ireland are in favor of the repeal. Okay. Um, okay. The the two uh, parties in the government right now um, have have left it up to their uh, members to vote their conscience. Uh, so there's, you know, some waiver so room there. They're not imposing party discipline. Right. Though. They can they can vote as they choose. Um, but it's it's understood that there will be um, opposition to uh, repeal in the government. Even though, I mean, if it if the referendum goes for repeal, it will the Eighth Amendment will go away. But what what replaces it is the question. Um, and, and there will probably let's assume it passes. The legislation will re retain some restrictions. Absolutely. I'm sure it will. Absolutely, I I, th I would expect it to be still quite restrictive, um, but I think in instances of um, you know rape, incest, those those sort of more extreme um, situations, I think I think things they will probably. Will go away. I'm guessing. Yes. And um, I was also reading yeah. that one proposal was that they would allow an abortion up first twelve weeks, which is pretty standard across most of the EU, EU yes. members. Yes. Um, if there is variability there. I don't want to say yes. it is total yes. standard, but okay. um, but that is the most common. And then health issues up to 24 yeah, weeks. Potentially, yeah. So, so it's not going to Oh, it's not going to be like free for all by any yeah. means. Um, no. But um, I think I think it, if it if the repeal passes, it will be pretty certain that it will be um, more more permissible. So has the EU weighed in on this at all? I'm just curious. I, I don't know. I don't does the EU so, no. have? Does it vary across members of the EU? Surely it does. Um, there is some variability. Yes. Okay. Um, Malta, as I mentioned earlier, right. is an EU member. Just a tiny little island with a very, very small population, um, but they have a complete abortion ban as well. Okay. Actually, okay. I think even in the case of um, at risk of maternal death, I think Malta doesn't even have an exception. So they're where Ireland was um, a few years ago, but. Um, uh, the rest of the EU members all have 
again, varying degrees of legality, varying restrictions. Some have, um, you know, no limits on access. Some have, um, you know, limited access requirements right. of, you know, right. rape, incest, mother's health. Um, also, um, income, financial, financial well-being and psychological well-being, and not just like physical health are also variables in a lot of the EU countries. But there is variability, and, and the EU does not impose on member states. And again, assuming this passes, then this would require some infrastructure improvements or in terms of hospital facilities, medical facilities, yeah. that availability. Probably uh, medical training because doctors training, aren't going to be um, trained on that probably. Yes, yes. So That's going to yeah. be interesting to watch. And when is this? This is Friday. This Friday, Friday. the 25th. Um, and uh, you say the recent polls show them. It's neck um, and neck, yeah. so to speak. There's there's a huge number of people who are or a large number of people who are who are claiming to be undecided. Um, and uh, a lot of the no campaigners are like, they're not totally undecided, they're just being reticent. Um, but I think all the analysts really think it's too close to call. Okay. From what I've read. Okay. Well why don't we so, take a short break and okay. then we'll come back and talk about um, interference in the US elections. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Christina Ricci with RAIN. Every two minutes, another American is sexually assaulted. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you are not alone. Help is just a call or click away through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Please call 1-800-656-HOPE, that's H-O-P-E, or visit RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. The International Power Rain Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Political Science Program at IU Southeast. Are you interested in how power is exercised by the people? Political science might be the major for you. Whether it's the political science or public administration track, you will get the skills to make you ready for a powerful career. To find out how to do this, go to www.ius.edu slash political dash science. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten. Cliff, we, I mentioned, uh, you know, with Ireland, as we were just talking about um, Ireland's upcoming abortion referendum, that there was, uh, you know, foreign activity. Um, Some Americans so, were, were there passing and others, out leaflets. Yeah, Absolutely, and others, yes. Uh, funding, especially. But um, 
obviously, uh, foreign involvement in democratic processes has been an issue uh, with the U.S. too, and it, yes. we've we've sort of bumped up against it a few times uh, across the last months of the Power Hour, but we haven't. We haven't spent much time on on U.S. Inter on interference in in U.S. elections, um, and uh, we're going to touch upon it just briefly here today, and maybe. Uh, sometime in the future, do a whole show yeah. on this. But um, uh, most Americans are painfully aware that um, that uh, the Russians did interfere in the U.S. elections in 2016. There is uh, unanimity a, among, among our all the intelligence, intelligence agencies, agencies that that uh, happened in yeah. various ways, either through social media, uh, through. Uh, um, Various meetings with uh, people from the Trump organizations, and and the facts are are incontrovertible. Uh, you know, there have been indictments, indictments, and uh, so on. On this front, uh, yes. we know that uh, they uh, have they hacked into the Democratic uh, National Con uh, Convention headquarters committee, uh, committee. released uh, emails so, that they. And this is the what hacking. the Mueller investigation is looking at right. uh, in terms of Russian interference and and Americans should be concerned about this uh in terms of of uh uh it, it not only is it illegal but we want our elections to be fair and we don't want foreign foreign entities to tamper with them and clearly this has been and Putin's made no bones about it, this has been a conscious policy not just of yeah. Putin's interference in the US election but also in Europe as well absolutely uh, yes. so th this is an active policy supported supported by the by the uh Russian government and in terms of democracy I mean this is a this is an issue um, we ought to be able to determine the outcomes of our own elections without some foreign government being involved regardless of your of your partisan politics that's right. like that's right electoral chips fall where they will Americans decide what they will but we decide and Without, we should be we should be concerned yeah. in terms of the the level of sophistication, the ability to use uh, uh, the internet and computers to attack our 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 election systems. We know they attacked several state uh, yeah. election systems in 2016. So th this is important. Yeah. Well, we also know just recently that now we there's at least some evidence. Uh, that uh, possibly Saudi Arabia and the UAE may have uh, There was also attempted. an Israeli angle. And there, an Israeli actually. angle as well, <laughs> yes, uh, in terms of influencing yeah. the 2016 election. Would you care to comment on that, Jean? Yeah, so um, the New York Times uh, broke a story uh, this last week that has gotten a lot of attention. Um, and basically, and there's there's been evidence released. Um, the, the Associated Press um, released uh, a, a trove of email documents that people can go can go read these emails right. um, with with you know pretty clear evidence that that there was communication. Um, so about uh, three months before the 2016 election, um, there was a a group uh, who met with Donald Trump Jr. Um, uh, to discuss you know possible assistance uh, for the Trump campaign. And that included, um, an Israeli specialist in social media manipulation. Um, and then there was, uh, a representative, uh, for, uh, um, 
Mohammed, Prince Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia, and That's um, George Nader, I think is yes, his name. Yes, yes, yes. and, and um, apparently he he met quite frequently, not just with um, uh, Donald Trump Jr., but also has known to meet frequently with Michael Flynn. Yes, and uh, yeah, Jared Kushner as well. Yep. So anyway, yep. There's been a lot of connections there, um, and uh, they basically, uh, as well as, um, sorry, they, there was also a prince from the United Arab Emirates who who was also represented by Nader, um, apparently in this in this meeting, um, and they basically um, offered to uh, provide assistance with. Um, uh, social media, again, some, similar in a sense uh, to what we, we see with the Russians. Um, this um, was Joel Zamel, who's the Israeli yes. social media. Yes, trying to shape opinion. expert, yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's uh, not totally clear uh, whether, you know, these, these offers were acted on, um, but they, they were, I think, quite clearly made, and the offers of assistance. Um, and they are, it seems now, another another piece in the Mueller investigation. Well, we do know that the uh, Crown Prince of UAE and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia um, made it very clear they were not supportive of Hillary Clinton. Right. Um, they uh, opposed yeah. the Iran agreement. Yep. Big deal there. And um, thus saw, I think... In terms of of um, of our current president, uh, someone who was on the record of stating that he wanted to get rid of the Iran agreement, which right. he has, right. uh, and so I think uh, that this meeting kind of grew out of out of policy differences, clear policy differences, yeah. it was, and yeah, preferences th for the next the future president of the United States yeah. that would serve their interests. The, uh, yeah, these um, these countries were not super enthusiastic about. Um, the Obama administration, um, there was a, you know, kind of ambivalent relationship between the Obama administration and the Saudi government. Um, and Obama was on the record as, as having been asked about the relationship with a, and responded with a um, Facebook, like, it's complicated <laughs> for the relationship status. Um, and, and the Iran deal w is a huge deal. Um, I, Americans need to know that um, one of the big rivalries within uh, the Middle East is between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And so um, having, uh, you know... It, and all of the Gulf, Gulf oh, yes. shakedoms, actually. Yeah. Uh, I was actually there in the... It's the summer of 93. Um, this was right after the first Gulf War. And we had a meeting with the uh, foreign minister of the UAE. And rather than talk about the threat of Iraq, he made it very clear. The biggest threat was Iran. And you hear this time and time and time again that the biggest threat is from Iran, or he used he called them Persians, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yes. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. So they are happy to see the the Iran nuclear deal, um, you know, get thrown under the bus, and uh, that was much more likely to happen under a Trump administration than a Hillary Clinton administration. Absolutely. Clearly. Absolutely. Um, so it, I mean, it is a little bit. Um, I mean, there's some. A, a little bit of political strange bedfellows there, um, since Trump was also, um, you know, 
he, he made a lot of statements during the campaign that were quite anti-Muslim. Um, and so on one hand, you know, we have the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and the crown prince of, of another predominantly Muslim country uh, teaming up to support, uh, you know, the Trump campaign. But, you know, that does highlight still the fundamental. I think that really highlights actually some of the, the, the real core fundamental political interests there um, of of these Gulf states. And it's much more Iran than, you know, whatever rhetoric may be tossed around even in a makes campaign. It even a bit different difficult or interesting to understand is, is you've got Israel thrown in there as well. It's yeah. intensely more strange bedfellows. Iran, more strange yes. bedfellows. You gotta love politics Saudi for that, yeah, right? I <laughs> yeah, I mean the Saudis and the Israelis, I think there's 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 more um, connectivity there than most people realize and that and that they would like to be public about. Um, but nevertheless that is a that is another strange bedfellow kind of thing. So, um, Cliff, one thing that uh, sort of comes up with, uh, you know, the the issue of the Iran nuclear deal, also the Venezuela thing, um, that I'll that I'll just throw in here and see if you can comment on um, my gas buddy app on my phone, which uh, <laughs> makes a little noise every time gas prices are going up in Indiana, um, has been dinging a lot lately. It oh, seems, yes. and I saw on the local news the other night that um, Indiana, um, with California, has like the highest gas prices in the country right now. Uh, so. And, I, I, you know, Kentucky may be a little bit lower, but um, overall prices prices are up. So what is with our gas prices and how does this how do international relations figure in here? Well, that's interesting. Uh, yes, I think every everyone has noticed, uh, especially if you live in Indiana, it's above three dollars a gallon now. So um, I, I think there, there are several reasons for this kind of uncertainty in the market, especially in terms of dealing with. Iran or the Iran nuclear deal. You've got Venezuela. You've got also the fact that oil pri uh, you had basically a, a downturn in the market, lower prices since mid-2014. Prices mm -hmm. have been really low. I mean, uh, my trips to Florida and, and parts of Alabama, I was paying $1.90 a gallon. Oh, I mean, it was just... Should have filled up the trunk. It was dirt cheap, <laughs> you know. So, but... Prices have been, in the last couple months, edging upward. Now, some of that is due to there was a big refinery fire in, in uh, Minnesota right. that affects gasoline that prices in this, in this area. But the uncertainty over oil market, plus we know that the Saudis and the Russians, uh, if you include all of OPEC and the Saudi and the Russians, you're talking about almost almost 50% of the oil production. They have actually, especially the Saudis and the Russians, have been cutting back on oil production to try to raise the price. To, and, and they've been successful mm -hmm. in that respect. So this is what you're seeing, uncertainty in the market, plus some conscious attempts by two major producers, uh, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia, and plus uh, the fact that Venezuela is just uh, uh, oil is basically collapsing, uh, yeah. oil production is collapsing in that state. So that's if that's, there's an embargo that would cut that off that would make that it even even supply. worse. Absolutely. And part of the Iran deal is the fact that they can sell oil on the international market more easily, and so yes. with that going away, that may limit the question Iranian is what, what what will 
if we put sanctions, what are our sanctions on Iran going to be? Are they going to touch upon oil? And that will make the price even, go even higher. So Absolutely. basic supply and demand, tighter, uh, tighter yes. supply from the Russians and Saudi it, Arabia it, it, and potentially it's Venezuela. political economy. Yeah. There are politics yeah. clearly involved. But oh, yes, mar the market, uh, yes, absolutely. So, Well, gas up in Alabama. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll see soon. Trying to imagine at $2 or less than $2 a gallon. That like, <laughs> gosh, I'd want to fill the trunk of the back seat, except that doesn't really work that way with gas, unfortunately. Okay, well, it looks like we are pretty much at the end of another edition of the International Power Hour. Um, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in this week or downloading us from uh, iTunes or Stitcher, and we will be back next week to talk about something. <laughs> yes, thank you, all of you. <laughs>